A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Anitha Jagadish, who's a principal enterprise architect at ServiceNow. To be clear, she was only representing her own views on the episode. Here are a few of the the key takeaways slash thoughts from Anitha's point of view. Number one, it is absolutely crucial to tie the data strategy to the business strategy. The business strategy must drive the data strategy, which then drives your data architecture. Number two, architects need to lead the way in digging into use cases to get the specifics on what data producers are trying to solve for data consumers. Then those architects can find the common patterns across use cases to tie to your organizational data strategy. That way, instead of addressing challenges via point solutions, you can drive that organization-wide choices that support many use cases. Number three, architects need to ask the probing questions to continuously tie work back to the business strategy and value or expected outcome for customers. If you aren't driving the business strategy forward, if you aren't helping the big picture, is the work worth doing? It's an important question to ask. Number four, data contracts, especially SLAs and SLOs, are really crucial to driving reliable and scalable data practices forward. How can people trust what they are consuming without having to check it themselves unless there are very specific parameters and documentation of what they're getting? The data space needs to rework the way we approach data contracts. We've seen that across many, many of the episodes of this podcast. Number five, we need to be careful to not head down the same paths uh, slash ways of working just with different names 
that we've tried and didn't work in the past. But we also need to focus on what we've learned from different approaches historically instead of reinventing the wheel. So hopefully Data Mesh can thread that needle, but we're, we're trying to figure that out, right, as a community. Number six, when thinking about how you should split into domains, look at the business strategy. How does your organization tackle business challenges? That should inform how you create domain boundaries. Number seven, one of the biggest challenges in data at the moment is centralization versus decentralization. It's a big question that a lot of people are going to have to answer across a lot of different, you know, kind of vectors and, and choices there. Number eight, API first is an important strategy for modernization of use cases, but it can easily lead to massive inefficiencies on the analytical side with large scale queries. So we need to think about how we can do APIs in an analytical world and consider patterns and guidelines to support bulk data consumption with volume, performance, and, and limits. Number nine, it will be difficult but worthwhile for organizations to migrate existing data assets to decoupled data products. There are some interesting ways to approach that challenge as well. We talked about a few in the episode. Number 10, trying to serve real-time use cases, as in those measured in millisecond latency and certain types of other analytical queries from the same data product is likely to cause big issues. If you think about it, if you have a very large data pool from a service, that can greatly impact performance. If that service is serving some kind of real-time operational use case, that's probably not the best thing. Let's not go back Let's also not go back to the days of trying to run these large queries against production at 3 a.m. When you really think about it, there isn't really a concept of what 3 a.m. used to mean in, in a global type of company, a global solution. Number 11, it is crucial to have your governance team switch from defensive only and a bottleneck to an enabling team, allowing domains to make smart decisions and providing the center of excellence and standards to let the domains focus on making the value add and domain context specific decisions where possible. Number 12, it's crucial for, for both sides in a potential data initiative slash project to share as much context as possible about what are the potential outcomes weighed against the potential costs. How can both sides collaborate to maximize the return on investment? Just seeking the highest return possible is what has doomed many data initiatives. Let's move past that way of working. And finally, number 13, we're headed towards you know, hybrid cloud, multi-vendor, multi-region, real-time needs within data. That will require us to rethink architecture that can scale and support the agility we need. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, very excited for today's episode. I've got Anitha Jagadish here, who's a principal enterprise architect at ServiceNow. Uh, but to be very clear, she is specifically not representing the company. She's representing her, um, you know, 
years and years of experience within the data and analytics space and kind of how she sees what's kind of going on with data mesh and general uh, enterprise archi- or data architecture uh, around uh, what we're actually trying to do. So we're going to cover rethinking how we do data architecture because obviously we're a lot of people out there struggling, which is part of why data mesh is becoming uh, more interesting to a lot of people. Talk about kind of some data governance as well as um, data discovery and what might be lacking right now in data mesh, some of the examples and, and some of the things that we really have to solve around that. So uh, very excited to kind of dig into a lot of those different topics. So uh, Anitha, if you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Yeah. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm very excited to be here uh, talking about uh, you know some of the things that are trending in the industry and why data has become so critical as well. Uh, I've been an engineering uh, advisor supporting many of the large enterprises, uh, applications, data engineering, business intelligence data warehousing applications in the past, um, had various versatile hands-on technology uh, experiences, um, starting from the big picture strategic thinking to uh, implementation, and uh, have been uh, leading a lot of the teams in the past um, and have a good understanding on the problem solving. So my knowledge and um, love for data started very early on when I started to work on many of the data warehouse projects, business intelligence projects, and eventually I've come to where I am now working as a principal architect uh, at ServiceNow, and I'm very excited to be part of this show, and I'm also excited of, uh, of my role in the company. Awesome. Yeah, and I think, as you said, you've got uh, a broad experience, so I think um, kind of what I, I talk a little bit about data mesh being what uh, got us here won't get us there. Right, like what what we've done historically has been continually okay, but not really keeping up with what we want. So we're trying to take that big leap forward, but it's it's difficult to do that and rethink how how we uh, approach it. So let, let's start with that rethink about what have you seen from kind of the historical approaches and and why people are so interested in something like data mesh that where we have uh, traditionally, you know, had these very centralized architecture, very centralized team. When when were you starting to see the breaking points? What do you think those are? And then we can kind of talk about what are some new paths we should tread and maybe what, what are some uh, things where people are calling it different things, but it's the exact same path that we've done historically, all of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think... Uh... <clears throat> I want to start with something that's very um, conceptually we uh, think about it, but we don't uh, see that a lot is uh, basically starting a data strategy and a data architecture should be based on the business strategy and the business use cases. What are we trying to solve? Uh, Business strategy should ideally drive the data strategy and the architecture. So we really understand the use case that we are trying to solve. Uh, We are evolving into product thinking, product strategy in the companies. I have worked and how we want to align the same for data as products, ensuring every product has a specific value or outcome. Now, if you think about this, every product will have its own definition. Companies have significantly shifted into modernization, breaking from monolithic to decentralized development. That's the need of the hour. 
Um, additionally, we are moving into cloud and no more on-prem. This also means the way we manage and treat our data should be thought very differently. We now need a mix of the offensive strategy we talk about, the defensive strategy, and many things that are also leveraging the hybrid and cloud implementation, which means many of our fit-for-purpose data sets will be cloud-hosted, and these products can reside across uh, cloud and multiple clouds and SaaS vendors. Another shift is a consumer. As a consumer, I need to think about how will I access this data? We no longer rely on the batch and the files, but clearly this leads to thinking about data-first strategy, API-first strategy for the companies. Also to note how the industry is also trending towards zero latency on data availability, shrinking the boundaries of temporal data for real-time analytics. Uh, and in order to really holistically look at what do we have from the assets point, what I have think, uh, what I've always emphasized that's important is catalog. As we build a strategy, we have to catalog our data assets and contracts to access these data assets whether it's internal, external, third party. And uh, next steps is we have to make sure that we bring in active metadata to keep the catalog always current. In short, what I think from the data architecture and data strategy where we are heading is towards thinking about hybrid cloud, multi-vendor, multi-regions, real-time needs of data, and requiring us to think architecture that can scale and support agility. These are some of the very important shifts we have to think when we consider architecture. And, and there's a lot of different things that I want to jump into there, but let's start kind of at what you're talking about at the end, which is when we start to think about com complexity and complications and we think about going multi-cloud, multi-vendor, multi, all these different aspects, anytime you're going multi that adds a layer of complication or a level of complication. And so we're not just trying to shift the way we handle data, but we're adding, again, more and more uh, complexities. So when people are heading down these paths, they're, you, know, you look at the um, mad landscape from uh, Matt Turk, where it's the um, machine learning, analytics, and data landscape or whatever, and it's... I think it's a thousand companies or technologies or something are, are in it at this point. I don't know if you've seen that that specific landscape picture, but it's just like it's so zoomed out that you can't tell any single company logo or, or technology logo. So there's just so many of these choices. So you're you're you've helped lots of companies to start to make these decisions. How do you? Get people in that mindset of let's, you know, one, let's not just do what we've done historically because we know it. And so we're just doing it with new vendors versus that. But like, how do people start to whittle that down? Like, what, what advice would you have when people start to think about there's, you know, uh, the just this, this incredibly branching set of, of potential choices? I think the business ask and business demands have driven a lot of this, uh, uh, you know, conversations and made it much more easier in my say, what I think um, when it comes to discuss discussions, what business is asking for and the time to market has become very critical. And uh, 
everybody has realized in some way or form um, it takes time to bring the data, move the data, and uh, assure the data is uh, trusted with respect to quality, has all of the things that we need with respect to the number of projects the teams are dealing with in the companies. So the prioritizations are always something that uh, comes as a bottleneck sometimes for the business use cases. So a lot of these conversations automatically tend to support its own argument in uh, you know the business needs. Like when COVID hit, nobody knew, okay, we need to solve for something differently now. Everybody had to reset the priorities and think about what needs to be done. So sometimes this naturally happens. Sometimes the business drives those based on the market conditions, which have, which is what has been very helpful in uh, resetting and thinking about how do we need to do this a little bit differently. It's become um, easier conversation because uh, the, the way the industry is moving with the speed and everybody wants things done in agility, right? The and the use cases, the way we want to enable um, and uh, make it more uh, user friendly for the end users, uh, we have to start thinking about not bringing all the things into one central location and then trying to apply it. We have to start thinking about how can I make this more uh, service oriented? That way, I can go apply the service where the data resides sometimes. So, it might be in the edge location, then I need to be running some capabilities on top of it to be able to give some kind of recommendation. Can I do that? That's the mindset mindset shift we have to start thinking from the decentralization also. Uh, I could be still doing those same modeling and capabilities, but I need to think about more service versus bringing it here and then running it. And one question that I would have of when we're so focused on time to market and the business strategy is, how do you keep yourself kind of at the higher level instead of point solutions, right? Where the business yeah. says, I need this and I need this, you know, yesterday. And so yeah. you're just constantly trying to um, chop down your backlog, which again is what part of what Data Mesh is trying to do. It's like pop us up to a higher level. But like, how have you seen that conversation working or what strategies would you recommend for people to, to think about there? I think one of the, Things were important as um, we architects see is um, we need to be plugged in as these strategies are being developed um, by the business. We have to be really partnering with them to be able to understand their vision and goals so we can uh, figure out in collaboration how this roadmap has to evolve. That's the right um, um, balance, I feel, because it is very beneficial to both the business and us at that point. Uh, but uh, a lot of the times we are only seeing the use cases come to us, you know, when, you know, that's how the, the strategy has been put together. We are getting only specific use cases. At that point, point uh, what has helped me is asking a lot of the probing questions, you know, what is the value? What is the outcome you're looking for? What is the problem statement we are trying to solve? What is the big picture? As an architect, we have to start probe those questions in order to get to the use case and the use case level details itself which is important because I need to, as an architect, has to think on the horizontal scale and understand where are we heading? What are we really trying to solve for? Especially in the data space, um, what industry am I applying this for? So do I need to think about certain things with respect to governance? Do I need to think about something with respect to security? All of these aspects, some of these details will not be available 
um, at just at the use case level. So we have to dig in and probe those questions to understand the holistic plan uh, and the project program that they are initiating at the strategy level so that it makes more sense for us to then think of the next level details that we have to add. That's why I was saying that, you know, it should start with the business strategy, driving the data strategy and the data architecture, because that becomes foundational on how you want to think about your domains, subdomains, what kind of rules do you want to apply? It becomes a little more easy. I think that's a really interesting insight, especially about your strategy should help inform kind of your domain boundaries. I haven't thought of that. I haven't heard anybody really talking about that. But I think, you know, uh, when Pete Hines Strangholt was on, he was talking about there's different approaches. You know, is it, should you try and develop your domains around kind of your systems and think about, okay, the way that these systems have worked, are those your domains? But I think exactly what you're talking about of those systems can kind of cross domains in a lot of cases. But what, what, domain structure is going to support your business strategy is something that I haven't heard anybody say, but it it kind of feels obvious when you say it, but I haven't heard anybody really (laughs) actually like go and say, no, like explicitly, this is super, super crucial to really think about. So I I, I like that. Is there any way that you might help people to understand that when you start to to really do that domain-driven design aspect? Yeah, so maybe we'll take a hypothetical scenario and example. Uh, like, I'll just take an industry that I haven't worked on, <laughs> healthcare. Let's say um, we have patient information, we have claims, we have disputes, um, similar to so many things that we would see in the industry in other in the other industries. So, if each of these are domains and each of these have its own sub subdomains, and we have created. Uh, uh, what we need from the strategy standpoint, there will be a lot of use cases that will evolve in the business side, which will cross these domains in order to pre- provide the output of the use case. So the cross domain will come into picture where a patient and a claim will come together, a patient and a dispute will come together, or a claim and a dispute will come together. So there will always be this cross cross collaboration happening between the domains. And if you don't that, tie that back up, in the business strategy or you know capabilities that we want to support and how we are going to do that we kind of lose that momentum from top down somewhere we will be lost in the message which is what i've seen a lot of the times we struggle with because we don't stop start from top down we always start somewhere in the middle and go up and then come down and when we are going crisscross and then we have lost the message at that point and Kind of circling back with what you're saying there, I'm, I'm still like one thing about where where we've made choices a lot, especially on the application side, but it's happened on the data side more recently, is that it is point solution uh, type of uh, purchasing and and you know vendor selection, technology selection, because it's okay. What's the best thing for this use case? And, you know, traditionally, when we've had top down, that's meant centralized. And that centralized has been that centralized IT purchasing, which doesn't end up really supporting the strategy because it's buying tools instead of buying or it's buying solutions and thinking that this solves the thing instead of what are we trying to solve and then using tooling to help solve it. So I would love, do you have any insight in how people can, can, 
still drive that that top-down decisioning, but still extract the real context up to say, what do we need, but then not get too tied into a use case. I know I'm, I'm jumping yeah. all around, but it, it, this is a problem that I keep hearing people kind of poke at and and if we can actually can you can you solve this for everybody in the industry right <laughs> but, yeah no i i have my uh, my thought process over that uh, maybe that is that may be one of the approaches i won't say it's the approach what i see is um the core principles of data mesh is very very uh, beautifully written um if you were to think about uh, some of these core principles about self service uh, you know, then federated governance and, you know, domain-driven design or any of these core principles, when we are looking at tooling, we have to st- start thinking about, can I make, uh, can I at least support some of these capabilities or principles that I'm thinking from the strategy standpoint? Let's not, let's not say data mesh, but let's say even for the companies where data architecture or data strategy is key or API strategy is key, can I get the data out of this particular tool that I'm thinking about in order to support the other use cases? Because agreed, the biggest thing the tooling decision will be based on, if we were to look at um, payments, I might be buying a particular application which supports my payments, core transactions really well, right? I may not be thinking about anything else at that point. But it's critical to have analytics and other use cases that we will have to support based on the transaction where I have to give a customer a report on his transaction or I have to make sure that you know the customer is not facing a fraud or things like that. I need to have access to the data. How am I going to have access to this data? What type of um, uh, uh, self-service is enabled on this so that I can uh, connect to this data? So some of these principles can be still applied in making those tooling decisions. And that has started to happen where in the companies I've heard people talk about, they're looking at a particular tool and they say, oh, this particular tool doesn't support API. They're still doing batch. I don't want to buy this. I've heard that many times. So it, it it's becoming the ground rules also for the companies when they are investing in the new tools and capabilities. They are starting to look at these modernization capabilities that is needed and cloud native features needed um, applied on these tools so that they can, they know that they can scale them. Yeah. And, and we've seen, you know, new tools that kind of rise and have become, you know, super, super popular, but um, it's funny because the large IT purchasing are like, well, we want to work with who we've used historically. And, and so it can the, the, legacy or I guess I don't want to call legacy as in the pejorative term, but like the ones that have already kind of made it, <laughs> Yeah, can they evolve to support this? Yeah, we have pushed, you know, I've seen where companies have pushed those vendors to start thinking APIs. You know, I want you to not give me a file anymore. I want you to expose an API because I can't uh, I can't wait for your batch file. I want to be able to real-time look up on some instances. So there are companies uh, influencing these roadmaps on those um, legacy tools that we have. Yeah, and um, it's funny when listening to people kind of talking about when they're, you know, doing data purchases that the data selling companies will, um, if you want to use their API, 
they actually charge like three to four X because they're like, you're more, you're going to get so much more value out of this if you go with API so we can charge you far more. And it's like, that's, it's, it's this kind of perverse incentive to stay in the past when you're trying to buy this data from somebody. Cause if you actually do it in the right way, the scalable yeah. and uh, innovative way, you're going to get more value out of it. So they're going to charge you far more. Just- right. Right. Yes. Yes. They are monetizing on it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, like one thing I want to tie this into is, is where you think that people could kind of head in bad directions with data mesh, but I, I'd love to kind of talk as well about um, when you talked about the offensive and defensive strategy, right? I, I've heard a couple of people mention that, but I'm still a little lost on what exactly what fits into offensive, what fits into defensive and what that means. And then would love to jump into kind of API first. And then if we can wrap in or, or we can circle back uh, a little bit later on it, but like, how can we avoid going down the bad paths <laughs> for data mesh? Yeah. Uh, on a high level, what I can say is um, a lot of the companies uh, either tend to lean on one or the other. Um, when I say uh, offensive, most of the things that we bring in from the uh, value is to ensure the outcomes. Outcomes are the ones that are driving uh, the strategy in those cases. Um, you know, there's a lot of different outcomes recommendations um, which are valuable for the company to drive the business. So the, the strategy is based on that. But when you think about industries like um, banks or healthcare, or any of the government, they are on the defensive side because um, they have to minimize the risk. Um, so they are more uh, focused on ensuring uh, um, the data governance is in place, um, data is protected, data is uh, so there is a quality data, uh, and there is a tr- trusted data that we talk about some of these aspects in the data mesh as well. Um, those are some of the key uh, ingredients uh, in the defensive side. So they value more and pro- want to ensure the data is protected and there is minimization of the risk for the data. Uh, whereas on the offensive side, it's all about driving the outcomes. Uh, the value is more on the outcomes. Which I think to me is is uh, somebody else explained it in, in a similar way. And it feels funny to me because I haven't been as... Uh, tied into the data industry historically. So when people are saying, oh, the, the quality, it's so that you don't head yourself down a, a bad path is defense. But I think of that quality and observability and all of that as being offensive as well, because it's like, oh, what more can we do if we can actually trust our data? What more, yeah. what more can we drive to for our solution? So it's, I don't know if that will flip versus, you know, don't get yourself in trouble versus what can we do? I think we are moving towards the middle everywhere. We are moving towards the middle to balance that. Irrespective of whether you're in a highly regulated industry or you're in a highly um, outcome-driven companies, both of them have to balance the way we are moving. Coming into the cloud, you obviously have to start putting data protection, security, at a highest uh, level to ensure you know your data is secure, right? So there will be certain pieces of uh, defensive strategy that we have to automatically apply on things, even whether it is an offensive strategy or defensive strategy. At the same time, if you look at the industries that are highly defensive, 
they cannot sustain longer if they keep continuing not thinking about the value and the outcomes they have to think about that so they they have to adjust their policies they will have to figure out ways on how i can look at the data and try to uh, derive values out of that what is that i can do in the healthcare industry to solve for uh, certain cases where i can look at the insight in a zip code and say what's happening in this area why are so many people with this kind of uh, certain disease uh, what can be done differently in this industry so that it can help in that zip code uh, to have a better health there or health plan there so even those uh, healthcare industries have to start thinking differently so they will have to balance this together and i've heard quite a bit with my peers and colleagues in different industries say, speak about that that they want to balance offensive and defensive and nobody wants to stick to one one place anymore yeah well and i think that that i mean i think that can also be a thing for talking about data mesh of like you you have to make sure that you've got your defense structured because it's if you're giving everybody access to all the data you're going to get yourself in trouble so like think mm-hmm. about how you cover yourself but that you you don't have to i mean it might be that you say okay instead of building in really really high quality controls at first we're just going to not let data that would need high quality controls be part of the data mesh until we figure that out right like there there's some interesting strategies there where it's like you don't have to put your potential highest value if the risk reward isn't there right like it, it's all yeah. about balancing that that return yeah. on every effect. company has crown jewel data and we have to figure out a way to protect the crown jewel data and if it's part of the data product you got to have an understanding of how to protect your crown jewels before you go expose that to anybody else yeah um so when we're thinking about how a lot of what we've talked about applies specifically to data mesh and you know we have to adopt new ways of thinking and we have to kind of think about that centralized decisioning but to support the uh distributed use cases and that we don't you know centralized decisioning doesn't necessarily mean um well there are certain things that do need that centralized decisioning but like the actual business dependent or use case dependent stuff shouldn't have that so where do you think that with what we've talked about where could people probably go wrong with data mesh like what are some things that you would tell people hey try and avoid these things yeah um let, let me think in a little bit broader perspective and give you my thought process here um some of the challenges will be very specific to the company and culture um people process tools um so to simplify not having a data driven mindset or a data strategy or a product driven mindset at the center can be definitely a big anti pattern for driving data mesh right another biggest uh, anti pattern not thinking about is the fit for purpose data products if i'm bringing everything into one big uh, warehouse not creating the fit for purpose data products and curating it the way the use cases have to support it's going to be challenging we also need to think about use cases needing different technologies and tool sets supporting the polyglot architecture um knowledge graph data virtualization versus everything uh, getting curated in a platform so we know that one size does not fit all uh, to enable business users um, having more uh, power on the use cases and driving the outcome and value we will have to think about the tooling as well um 
for the those aspects. And then bringing data products closer to the domains is very critical to ensure the skills and the knowledge of the stakeholders we have in supporting the data products is effectively applied. The agile teams should have a good mix of product owners, engineers, the consumers to validate the data products. So we know the, the trust and the value and the quality that is coming out of the data product is, is as clean as possible then. In addition, we need to start thinking, like you said earlier, we need to think about some of the foundational things at the grassroots, applying on, on, the, on the governance side uh, as we build the data products itself. The value of the trust res uh, with respect to quality, security, maintaining the contract definition, SLO, is critical to the success of data products. Um, companies may not have luxury in building data as products from scratch, which we know. There are a lot of assets already in place. So I was leading one of these projects where I had to work with our stakeholders and the technology teams. Uh, we had a very successful data warehouse, um, which was... Uh, a very good data product by itself. It contained use case and then had a lot of the good values that a data product can support from the definition standpoint. But the performance started to degrade over the time. And the definition and the value of the data warehouse had extended beyond the initial scope because the quality was so good on the data and it was meeting a lot of the features of the data. So, you know, what happens is, hey, this is a great uh, um, um, data warehouse, let's do this because they already have all of these capabilities. That's a mindset sometimes people think, right? The consequence was that now your data delivery was delivered, uh, delayed for the primary consumers. Uh, and but, so what we had to do in the process is as we unpack this, we wanted to keep it simple to ensure the product definition remains consistent and then plan the roadmap of all other use cases and capabilities that were on top of it. So we had to refactor and re-roadmap some of these and build a new products as part of the refactoring. So we will have to think about taking the monolithics and trying to look at the value statement, important uh, key outcomes that are needed to come out of it, then create the roadmap on building other um, data products in order to support that. So that will also happen because we may not be uh, completely starting from scratch doing domain-driven design. So we will have to look at every project that comes across and how can we then drive towards the uh, data mesh strategy in that. And then I worked on various other complex projects uh, where we had to source data from hundreds of applications every time we had to build on use case. So every time I was doing uh, one project, I had to source from 100 applications because that much of data was needed in order to create the outcome that we were looking for. So this is a very costly and time-consuming effort. It's multi-year projects and, you know, it's it really time-consuming. And um, every time you're dealing with new product owners who don't understand the data, you have to, they have to learn, invest time in learning the data. It was very complex. So what I want to emphasize is it's very important for us to focus on the con catalog and contracts you know, understanding the data and publishing this at the data products and having the lineage and understanding where we can leverage some of these data products that are already doing some of these things so that I don't have to resource everything from the beginning into this uh, one big <laughs> centralized uh, warehouse so that I can 
support one certain use case. And especially this is very critical in the banking industry because there are so many projects that we support in the in the banking industry and in healthcare. I, I can assure you that every time I touch a use case, I will be touching at least minimum 20 sources. So do I want to source that every time for one use case? We will have to really be a little more smart in leveraging data mesh there and how we can do this better. Speed to market as well. A lot of people are, are using, like they're finding at least kind of mid-scale, at least that the enterprise service bus is is still a very usable pattern because then at least they, they know that they can source data from a specific place and that you know, in general, it's it's a scalable way of sourcing the data, and then you bring that into the data product um, itself, and the data product does the transformations. That you're not relying on all of these kind of one-to-one ETLs, and the the pipeline itself is the thing that that ends up being you know uh, transforms it, and so people don't recognize exactly why you're doing it versus bringing stuff in a little bit more raw and and transforming yeah. it into the product. It's it's. Uh, it's something that yeah. I think will let us to be more scalable. But I, I liked a lot of what you were saying of this. There's a fair number of, of people that I've had on that are saying that their data mesh implementation, they've got the luxury of it being more greenfield than it is brownfield. But that is a luxury. And you you have a business that you have to keep running. And so, you know, it's not that you can just throw out everything that you've done historically. You have to do that smooth transition. Um, Kirk Gardner at the Nib Group was talking about um, how they use like the strangler fig pattern, which is like they, they slowly wrap more and more things around the historical to add more and more value until they've subsumed the value. And so they might be you know serving something from a warehouse but at the same time, they're serving it from this new thing, and then you slowly transition people over. Strangler pattern, yeah, 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 yeah. They, yeah, that was one of the patterns that we were trying to create when we were breaking away from monolithic. How do we build a new data product and then slowly move the traffic from the monolithic to the new data product? You might have to build multiple data products, and then you will have to have this pattern applied there, depending on the use case you drive that particular traffic to that particular data product. Yeah. It's, um, I think they're, they're trying to rename it because of the connotation around Strangler, but I, I can't remember what, what the new... New name word. is? Yeah. yeah. No, this was something I put together a couple of years ago. I definitely remember that where we were trying to um, show what are the different patterns that we might have to support in the, in the data architecture. Um, and this was one I had called out because monolithic was biggest one we have to think about <laughs> yeah it's yeah i yeah. mean even even when you've got stuff that is decentralized these things become kind of microliths right like you've got these yeah. these issues of but you also don't want to do you know where microservices became you know whatever is smaller than micro nano services or whatever and so then all of a sudden you know a a company of 10,000 people has 30,000 services <laughs> Yeah, like, that doesn't work it's, either. So, yeah, that's the reason uh, I think it's very critical for us to think through the strategy at the beginning. Um, API first, data first strategies are so important because you you don't know how soon you can fall out of track and build all of these so many different um, 
you know services and uh, warehouses or that can scale up in such a fast way then it becomes a night maintenance nightmare right well and uh an issue that's come up a lot uh on the podcast is that we for APIs I think we're we're we figured out how to do APIs relatively well on the operational side and sometimes those are you know pulling just data in general or, or whatever but analytical focused APIs we don't really know how to do those we we don't know how to do versioning we don't know how to 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 alert somebody to a change in semantics and like how do you do these large scale um, data polls instead of you know hey I, I want the current state it's like oh I want this historical state with these filters and this and this and this it's like they're still very expensive and everybody is kind of building them in a one-off way and we don't know how to do versioning so I'm hoping that we can get more folks to present about how they're dealing with analytical APIs but it's it's just a a real uh hidden issue that we need to to hit for around data mesh and, and other decentralized ways of doing it so that we've got that reuse, right? That not everything has to be custom built for everything. Yeah. And not everything has to be APIs as well, right? Um, we can't, like we've been talking about one size doesn't fit all. We have to figure out the best practices with respect to the volume performance and, you know, the frequency all of those things that we have to think about when we say which is the right fit to use when um, for analytics you know, use case, if I'm talking uh, 100,000 rows, I'm not going to think APIs. I don't want to think APIs. So we have to think of a better way of trying to, can I stream the data? Can I uh, create a pipeline of this data so that, you know, can I be, or do I have to bring in, something like Kafka in the middle so that I know I'm not pulling one at a time or bulk at a time, but I can pull as much I need and page it. So there are different ways in architecturally we'll have to come up with um, solutioning that. So um, putting everything as an API first, uh, but then uh, the un understanding of that can be very tricky. Like if they think, okay, we told API first, then let's do this for everything is not the right answer. We do have to get to the little bit of details on the use cases and how they are trying to consume. Is any API a right fit here versus a microservice is a right fit here or it should be a SQL or it should be something else? How do we do this? Some of those details, patterns also has to be thought through. And that's something um, I've done in my previous role. We were doing a lot of that and trying to put those guardrails, ground rules, patterns, we were publishing a lot for the teams to leverage. That way, you know, they can just look at the conditions and then figure out what's the right right thing to do to service their end users. Or, or that it is that like it, we have to develop that API that can be aware of that, right? That somebody can yeah. make a call to it and it does. It's not like I'm just pulling these little bits of data. It's, it, you know, yeah. this is the thing where, I get really concerned around people. You talked a, a little bit earlier about uh, real-time analytics and things like that. And I tell people, if you're doing real-time um, and you're actually doing analytics against the data product, that shouldn't be on your mesh because you need to be able to take, to do these large-scale complex queries. And if you need real-time, like, you know, oh, okay, I'm going to replay. Okay, we're, we're using Kafka or Pulsar or whatever, some streaming technology. Okay, I've got this query that wants you to replay all of the messages that this filter 
over the last 30 days. Yeah. And, and it's like, okay, so my real time where I need, you know, sub millisecond latency and this query, no, I'm going to block that query. So it's yes. not, you, you could land that data into another queue or something that, that could be queried against, right? It's not that you don't want to re-leverage it, but like when yeah. you've got that real-time need, you optimize for the real-time need and you're going to block any of the large-scale analytics. Exactly, absolutely. It's smart to do that, right? Like it makes yes. sense to, but then don't pretend that it's like, oh, we can do these large-scale analytical queries against that same thing. You know, if you land that data into BigQuery or, you know, whatever technology right. that you want to use, great. It doesn't matter at that point because you've landed it into something that doesn't have that kind of performance overlap issue. But mm -hmm. I just keep running mm -hmm. into the same thing of people want the operational and the analytical to be in the same thing. And it's like, if it's operational and data, but not the analytical data, if it's the ones and zeros of data, sure because then you're just pulling that API first type of approach. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, operational analytics and real-time analytics is obviously um, not going to be um, the way we think analytics on the historical data and then looking at the predictive uh, analytics and all of that. So it, the shift is basically, um, let's say I'm doing a search and I'm trying to find a product. Um, then I put this search on the Google and Google immediately gives me 10 other products that matches my criteria maybe so it's the real-time recommendations in those sense so we'll have to really understand the use cases and the volume of data that we are going against to get these recommendations based on what i have in my in my current data product right you know, where my, i'm producing this analytics that becomes very critical what do i have immediate access to with the data respect and what can i give real value from the real-time aspects in that sense and where can data mesh play a value with respect to pulling this real-time analytics? Uh, how many data products do I need to um, put this request against uh, through an API call and pull that information together? So we will have to think through the use cases and create that um, data mesh, a mini mesh that we would want to create for that particular use case, right? Which domains am I calling? Which subdomains am I reaching out to? And um, what's the most effective way to do that? So all of those um, um, architecturally, the smaller use cases will start to apply. Um, and then we will have to see, again, think about the volume performance again. And if they are wanting in milliseconds, can I provide that in milliseconds? Um, so what's the best way to do that? Right? Yeah, do, should, should I be doing this as live queries against these other data products or should I be, you know, consume? putting this into its own data product. So then I'm only yeah. carrying against this own data product. Yeah. And you so mentioned virtual. The definition of breaking. Yeah. I have kind of like a high level taken a stab at breaking down the products, how we would define a data product, a raw data product, which is source aligned. Uh, I've created like integrated data products. We are also called out something called ML data products, which is more denormalized or in, in a way, ML teams need to run the data analytics, right? So we could be creating multiple data products depending on what the use cases are demanding. Yeah, I think I think that's a really important <laughs> to get your yeah. arms around. It's it's easier said than done, and it's sometimes in a lot of these cases it's not very easily said to really even explain it, and it's far easier <laughs> to talk about yeah. than do. So, um, 
so I, I, I want to be cognizant of time because I, I, data governance and, and like data mesh is such a huge, huge topic. So I want to give it a, um, some time here in our conversation. Like, so we were talking about policies and security and defensive versus offensive. Like, how have you seen taking the moving to the offensive approach of what can we allow or, you know, making sure we've got enough defense, but that we derive more, more value, but that we have still the centralized rules, but that we also enable the kind of fine grained of, Hey, for this one use case, we're going to go a little bit different. Um, and we're aware of this and we're going to put that in, but that you don't make every single thing its own, you know, special snowflake type of thing where every single thing is, is a one-off because then it just becomes a nightmare to support. So we'd love to hear how you've seen kind of that balance work on that. Yeah, in my opinion, data governance is instrumental for data as products, whether you're supporting offensive or defensive data strategy. Uh, Data governance will play a critical role working with various business units, market conditions, countries. In order to be effective, we need to consider federated governance or grassroots governance, which we talked about in the data mesh and move towards more centralized governance as much more um, as more of a center of excellence. So center of excellence could be driving the foundational um, standards and governance, but the grassroots governance might be focusing on certain industries or certain domains specifically. This will help us uh, have the shared responsibility between the business units and technology teams um, and with the centralized data governance, we can focus on the standards that should be applied um, consistently across all of the federated domains. With um, data being called as an asset or new oil, uh, data governance is more critical for an organizational strategy. The mindset has to shift from data governance to be seen also as more an enabler versus um, you know afterthought. Oh, this is uh, this is something we have to go through. Uh, data governance is also critical where we have regulations. Healthcare banks, government have higher regulations co- compared to the tech companies. Uh, even within each of these industries, we can again look at some of the common domains where data governance is going to be critical, like HR, finance. Every company has that. They have regulation irrespective of whichever industry you are in. Uh, GDPR, CCPA, HIPAA, SOX, all of these are very critical. Um, whereas some domains may have uh, lesser compliance re- regulations where, and there may be some domains where you will have higher compliance that you have to support. And um, we have to think about data governance being applicable to very country-specific rules also. Like if you look at European cross-border rules, there's sort of quite a bit of complexity on the things that we have to apply when we are deploying products in Europe. So we have to think about cross-border uh, rules there. So the regional laws are also affecting the um, analytics data and uh, how we continue. And this is going to continue and trend. It's not going to stop. This is only just going to get worse, (laughs) I feel, in the way things are heading. So building data products will be easier to uh, strategize on how you want to migrate, build new for each of these regions. You want to start applying some of the foundational ones on the data products so that deployment of these data products into different industries might needing might be needing new few t- tweaks versus a lot more changes. 
Other aspects of data governance uh, that are common to all the domains are data quality, metadata, data lineage. We want trusted data products and we want to be able to understand the data and the quality around the data, where it is originated and what happened to the data and the value creation. We want to have the visibility to that. Uh, we need good, quality, good data quality even to build the right AI and support decision, the decisioning. They help ensure data biases are addressed, proper tagging is in place, and there is more systematic way of supporting data management for AI. Um, active metadata is something that was trending in 2022 based on Gartner, uh, but I feel companies are still yet to adapt. So it needs to continue and cannot be obsolete until companies are adapting this. <laughs> Um, data lifecycle, um, it is critical we support data lifecycle for every product we define in the domain. Uh, data retention is very critical also in the data governance. I've seen a lot of monolithics that are built, which has many data products within that monolithic. And it's been very difficult to understand how do I archive data, how much of data should I keep, and what should I archive, and what should I purge it becomes a massive problem for the companies with respect to um, risks that they are taking in keeping this data. So applying data governance as part of your data de product definition is very critical. And uh, as you traverse the data on various use cases, we need to ensure that these basic uh, capabilities that we talk about in the data governances are also, are also cascaded in the use cases. And I think even when you were talking about the retention issue is certain if, if you don't really understand exactly what data products rely on other data products where you go, oh, okay, this one, we're going to, we're going to keep the, the information for six months, but there's one that's reliant on that data product and it's reliant based on queries instead of reliant based on it's got the, it's pulled in the historical data and it's like, oh, well, we need it for three years for this other data product. Just even though it's like, Mapping that is so impossible. Um, so I, I did want to dig into then, you, you were talking about what's centralized, what's decentralized, or what's centralized, what's federated. And a lot of it is um, what, what I, I call, you know, greasing the skids of, hey, there's a lot of things where most of the time, organization or, you know, domains for each of these data products don't need to really care about making this decision. The sensible defaults are good enough. So like, how, how have you gone about finding those sensible defaults? How have you gone about kind of helping people to decide when they need to deviate from sensible defaults and like that, that kind of concept? Because I think it's very challenging right now. Everybody is reinventing the wheel with every data product. And so yeah. there are some people that are really, really chasing reuse um, and so that they can get to sharing new incremental data very, very quickly. But like, it's, it's still just a mystery to me how people can find exactly what are the things they want to reuse outside of like SLAs of just going, hey, our standard one is this is going to get refreshed once a week. And if somebody needs more frequent, like we'll do that. But how have you seen going about that? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting uh, question as well, because I know there is a lot of these questions that are popping up uh, in the companies and in the industries. And I'm actually kind of 
in the process of putting um, some of the same exact things that you're asking uh, for uh, there I'm working right now. One of the things, a few ground rules, you know, very simple definitions of when, when we go with centralized versus decentralized common rules, very easily identifiable. We can put that in. But, um, you know, when I need real time, you're decentralizing. When you need, when you are okay taking the latency, you are centralizing. But again, we think about certain aspects. Not everything can be defined in the roles, but, you know, we have to start looking at uh, what can I give the teams to be able to decide this based on the use cases where I'm, at, I'm not, not engaged in every use case? So what can I give the teams to be able to decide this more effectively? Those are some of the key principles I'm kind of trying to put together and share with the teams. One of them for at the top of my head I can think of is data freshness based on what I'm trying to derive in the value uh, how fresh the data has to be in order to provide this output or value to my customer, right? Um, depending on that, make your decision and where the data is to be able to ensure that you're pulling the data from the right source. And other things that we also have to think in deciding, um, can I trust this data? Is this data reliable? Do I have all of the data conditions that it meets in order to support the use case? So some of these key questions is what I'm trying to say. Architecturally, we have to start thinking, uh, even on the solutioning side uh, from the data architecture, and decide what's the right approach to do with respect to uh, meeting the needs of the business use cases. And do you have any advice on extracting the, the necessary needs? Because the number of times when people have been in an organization that's been doing data warehouse. And so they're getting data on that freshness of 24 to 48 hour cycle, right? In some cases, it's not even, this gets computed every 24, it's a 48 hour lag. So they'll say, we need it with real time. And then yeah. you start to dig in and they're like, oh yeah, if this lands within two hours, I'm just sick of waiting for it that, that it's a, you know, a day or two, especially two days late. And so within two hours is fine. Or you start to say, you know, somebody says, you just kind of assume that data is, is very trustable, accurate, you know, however you want to measure that. But somebody goes, no, we need it with a, a much higher freshness. But it doesn't really matter if it's that accurate, you know, it needs to be like 95% accurate, and then it's good enough, because we're looking at directional, we're not looking at very, very specific. So yeah, found to actually extract that because everybody makes these these asks and says here's all my wish list and then that's been viewed as requirements instead of let's do collaborative negotiation to get yeah. to what's going to drive the most value but it's going to cost me the least to actually create and maintain and that we're going to maximize our return on investment instead of maximize the return but then the investment takes six months <laughs> and it's already right. passed Oh, yes. And that's the very key questions that we as architects have to ask as well. You're right, Scott. Absolutely right on that. Because um, not everything needs real-time data. So one of the questions we ha ask is, uh, how are you planning to use this data? Where are you planning to use this data? Uh, and uh, what is that uh, value or outcome we are trying to derive here? And so we can really give them an understanding of how much data do they need in order to support that. Let's say, for example, I'm doing a simple uh, connectivity to an application. Um, 
the important thing is, yes, I need freshness of data here because I'm logging into a critical application. I need to make sure my credentials are still, uh, I have access to that system. So there is a need for freshness of data here. Of course, an employee who has been just let go, uh, if you have not updated the system for two hours, <laughs> he and he's still he or she is still able to log in, that's not credible then, right? So we really have to evaluate the use cases and what they are trying to derive value out of it and what is the outcome, where we are leveraging, how are we planning to use it? Some of these key questions are important for us to understand, to determine where to go with respect to this data, where is that freshness available, and where, um, where can I pull this data from? So that that's going to be very important. And, and that it's documented so people can actually yes. see and, and understand. Is it, so when I've talked to a lot of people, they're, they're still struggling with those actual conversations because data users aren't used to any pushback. In, in, in a lot of cases, because they're like, they're used to giving people requirements, and then people go out and, and try and deliver to those. And there's not yeah. that kind of collaborative negotiation and communication, but where you say, hey, you're telling me you need five nines of, of accuracy, but you also need, you know, uh, 10 milliseconds latency. That is yes. going to cost us $10 million to do versus if we can relax that to you know, uh, two nines, you know, 99% uh, accuracy and a hundred milliseconds, it's going to cost us a hundred thousand dollars. And, oh, we're going to be able to deliver it, you know, in two weeks instead of six months. Like, how have you found to like, do you have any tips or tricks to to actually (laughs) getting people to have sensible things instead of I'm going to ask for the world and just hope they deliver it? Versus like, how can we get into a collaborative conversation around that? I, I think that's a very uh, valid uh, scenario we, we all deal with um, because we are working with legacy systems. Not everything is modernized. We are heading towards modernization. We are heading towards real-time needs. Are we there yet? Not, because all of these companies are built decades ago. Uh, Some are even century-old systems. (laughs) Some are very legacy. So in order to get to what the user's business is asking, it will take us time, and there is roadmap. So one of the things we have been uh, able to use in the negotiation is, uh, what is it we can really give you now in order to support what you need to do? And let's put things on the roadmap, continue to work with you, and support you in the long-term needs, um, tactical versus strategical, right? And the second thing is cost comes in. Is business really ready to invest this kind of cost right now to make that um, big shift in the infrastructure that is needed? If they are, um, yes, let's look at it and then let's look at other timelines to support that and all that. It's definitely not going to happen in the timeline. So we have to look at the scope and redefine the roadmap. And uh, the other thing is what I have always uh, uh, guided the teams uh, who support these capabilities, who support these services is publish your SLAs. If you are a batch, you tell them your batch data today. Your data is one day old. This is what your freshness is. Put that in the contract because right now that's the biggest problem. The catalog and contracts are not there. So everybody goes into the assumptions that I can get this near real-time data here. No, you cannot get near real-time data here because there is some reconciliation process that happens at the end of the day. The reconciliation doesn't happen every 15 minutes. So 
obviously these understanding won't be there the more we can publish things in the contract and the catalog the better it is for use cases to do this discovery during the initial scope of the use case definition acceptance and things like that yeah and and uh, something that has come up a couple of times is when you're creating a data product don't um, commit yourself to overly complicated SLAs because then you're, you're setting yourself up for a lot of issues. So you kind of want to start with, hey, here's what we've got. And we've got kind of mediocre SLAs. But, you know, then when you have a use case that needs better SLAs, you come to us and we do that versus putting in work that's not necessarily going to be very useful if, if it's going to be more costly. So, yeah, I, I fully agree. Yeah, I, I've had a, a number of calls on the uh, contract side or a number of uh, episodes on the contract side because it's something that where people are really, really struggling with. Yeah. So we covered a whole lot. We, we'd planned to maybe even cover more things, but I, I think uh, we, we ended up covering quite a bit. But is there anything that we, we didn't cover that you, you think – um, you, that we really should have and, you know, any, any thoughts in closing or is there any way you'd like to wrap up the uh, episode in general? No, I think uh, uh, we did uh, touch on various topics and I know you are doing an amazing job in this uh, particular podcast series, bringing different perspectives and ideas and thoughts. I'm sure you're literally touching a lot of the different areas in the details of it, which is beneficial for all of the listeners and including me as well. Um, so I think um, you know, one of the things that has been very, I have been very passionate about is really thinking the big picture and then driving into the details and understanding the use cases a little more. Um, um, so we have to ask those probing questions uh, to get the big picture and to the details wherever we are in the organization to be able to really make a difference in building this data product. I'm hoping people are successful thinking that we may, we, may not, we may be able to do this from the scratch. We won't have that luxury. So we have to start thinking about how to fit this in our current model. How can we make it more efficient? And, and I loved what you started off with when you said the business strategy has to drive the, the data strategy and the data strategy drives the data architecture. I think so many people want to start from you know, the data architecture up and then, or, or maybe data strategy and kind of have that drive the, the data architecture irrespective of the, um, of the business strategy. But it's, I'm, I'm glad there are more and more people coming on that say, what are you doing from a business perspective? That's, yes. <laughs> data doesn't live, data isn't the business. It doesn't live in a vacuum. It's not the thing. It's, it's, it's a very, very important driver for your business. And that's what we're trying to get to is that data-driven, data-informed. But yeah, exactly. Again, thank you so much for the time. I'm sure there's going to be some people out there that would love to follow up with you. Uh, where's the best place to do that? And what would you like people following up with you about? Um, I The best way to contact me is through LinkedIn. Um, I'm connected there, Anita Jagadish. And um, uh, you can definitely message me on the questions that you think uh, you have and anything related to data. I would love to hear what the questions are and see if I know there may be an opportunity I can help you. Or if I don't know, then something new I, I get to learn. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think those context exchanges are just so valuable to everybody. That's kind of 
the point of the podcast is learning out loud. I'm, I don't know this stuff. So asking experts and getting different perspectives and kind of tying it all together is so interesting to me. So again, Anita, thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast today and uh, sharing your context and perspective with us. And as well, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Scott. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Anitha Jagadish, who's a principal enterprise architect at ServiceNow. You can find a link to her LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one off or a month to month basis. You know, read kind of. Throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.